All right, welcome to another episode of Breakaway from the Rat Race. And today we have the pleasure of speaking with David Robinson. And David is the CEO and founder of Cannibal Capital, which is a boutique real estate investment firm. He's an active investor, broker, and podcast host. And as a broker and investor, David has been directly involved in over $350 million in real estate transaction. That's a massive amount of transaction. And at Carnival Capital, Carnival Capital uh, David oversees all due diligence, capital raising, investor relation, and asset management for his firm. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah. So tell tell us about how you got you got started into and how you ended up going into this. Uh, you know, being a founder of Cannibal Capital, I'm sure it doesn't happen like, oh, yeah, I just got out of uh, college and this is what I do. Uh, so how did that, what was your journey to get there? Well, um, I, I've got to go back to when I was fired from my first job. Um, uh, I Really, my first and only professional job was working for my own father. It is mechanical engineering firm. And uh, I was you know, recently wow. graduated from high school, I was in college and uh, working for him uh, part time and had screwed up a couple things uh, that I, a couple tasks that I was supposed to do. The frustration set in as I think uh, a, a father's frustration would set in. And yeah. we, we mutually agreed that uh, I wasn't a fit uh, to employee. And that sent me on an entrepreneurial path that ultimately led to me getting a real estate, uh, a real estate license and getting involved early on in just the traditional residential sales business. Um, I got involved in around 2004 and quickly um, found a niche in the foreclosure prevention and short sale world. And so wow. I built up a large, uh, one, of the, one of the top producing short sale uh, brokerage businesses here in Utah, where we helped clients through the challenges of the recession. You, start, you started that in 2004, just in time for the 2008. Yeah, so uh, leading up to 2004, I sort of cut my teeth in the market. This was yeah. before loss mitigation departments were formed and wow. even banks knew exactly how to work out these type of deals. And so um, when the hit, I was well positioned to really serve a lot of clients in that space, which we did. And then on the back end of the recession, uh, we moved into more traditional brokerage business where I managed uh, sales teams and a national franchise brokerage. Ultimately, after about a decade in the business, I looked back and I realized, my goodness, I hadn't done nearly enough personal investing mm -hmm. to build up any legitimate amount of wealth or cash flow in my life. And that caused me to rethink my whole business structure. And that's when we pivoted and, and started our own boutique brokerage based out of uh, Salt Lake City, Utah here, where we serve clients who are looking to buy and sell small-scale multifamily property for their own portfolios. Yeah. So anything under $5 million, all the way down to your typical fourplex, will help private investors buy and sell that for their own personal portfolios. And then about two years ago is when we got involved in the syndication side of the business and acquiring large commercial multifamily assets. Oh, that's very good. And uh, <clears throat> I find that I'm going to go back to kind of like when uh, your first job and kind of how it got fired. Uh, but I think this is this is kind of interesting because I, I think a lot of people that I talk to, 
getting fired is kind of or losing their job and stuff like that kind of is a wake up call it's kind of like it's the catalyst that says you know this is this is bs you know i i don't want to have that to happen to me again i'm going to take control of my life and all of that and if i fail it's going to be my fault not some other you know some other manager or supervisor that says oh, or father says you know oh you're no good at this you missed all these tasks and stuff like that <clears throat> so that's that yeah that's, that's I, I would say you know an entre an entrepreneurial path isn't easy right mm -hmm. so yeah. there's pros and cons to you know being an employee and i have some very very wealthy friends that uh you know built a career in the corporate world and helped large companies grow and eventually exit and they uh, had incredible windfalls out of those exits. Yeah. And there's not necessarily one path for me personally. I'm just not geared as an employee. I, I'm geared to you know carve my own path and tread my own path. And and there's pros and cons to both. And and ultimately for me, it was definitely the right path. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, it's not for everybody. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, you're in control, which means that, you know, you have to be, you're always on, you're always thinking about, okay, well, how, and that's kind of like what I, how I spend my, my life is, how am I going to screw this up? <laughs> and then, <laughs> right. kind of, what's plan B and plan C and plan D? And then kind of like, at the same time, how do we grow having to look at the economy and making your own decision? Uh but to me, I find it comforting because at least I'm in control. I can change the direction of how the company is going. Uh, and as opposed to if I work for a person, a, you know, a company, they make the decision and the decision might be, hey, you know what, we're not going to do your side of the business anymore. We're going to we're going to cut down our staff. And all of a sudden you end up on the unemployment line um, with a whole bunch of other of your coworkers and then having to find a job all at the same time. And I'm afraid that we might be, I hope not, but I'm afraid we might be heading in that direction uh, if we're going to have a, a recession. So I yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I, you know, I, I'm the only one in my family that's sort of taken this uh, more of an entrepreneurial path. My other brothers are in the medical fields and, and, uh, and, and so, um, you know, they're W2 employees and, and, yeah there's also some risk in that right they've yeah. they've felt that themselves as they've uh had to transition jobs or uh take pay cuts or or whatever it might be or just corporate challenges that they have to face um but yeah we could be heading into a time in a place where uh, a lot of those white collar jobs are are the ones that actually get uh get trimmed off yeah exactly <clears throat> Uh, so, so you you started working as a as a broker, real estate broker, and you kind of grew uh, this uh, this franchise. Uh, you did very well, and it's just kind of interesting to me too that uh, you worked very well and you, things were going well. But then you realize that yeah, the company is going well, but what about me? Like, what am I doing for myself if I want to you know do something else? Or if I want to retire and all that kind of stuff. And that's when you started uh, investing and that's when you started Carnival uh, Capital. Is that right? Or yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is, um, you know, it was, it, everything was going well in my business and in my life. Um, you know, ultimately things were just 
good. Yeah. And and the challenge with that is that it didn't cause me to really think yeah. far enough in advance and to make any significant mm -hmm. changes in my world that would potentially lead to more wealth and cash flow, uh, but would make me uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, and there was a moment in time where we had some medical problems in our family. My dad had a, a heart surgery and uh, the surgery went well. But after the surgery, he ended up getting an infection and went septic and ultimately died. They revived him and, and he's still with us today. But that moment in time really caused me to reflect on where I was and how I was leaving not only a financial security for my family, but also a legacy for my family in the future yeah. that they could build on. Yeah. And that's what caused me to say, you know what, um, it's time to get out of the comfort zone and move into a space where I'm going to be in closer proximity to investment property and investors that were doing the types of things that I wanted to do. And that's ultimately what caused me to, to pivot and start our own boutique brokerage here mm -hmm. in Utah that was focused on uh, multifamily investment property. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> people shouldn't wait for a dramatic event in their life to start focusing on their personal life and the legacy for their children. Just take heed from other people's experience. It is important to start thinking about it right now and start preparing for it. It doesn't mean you have to quit your job. It doesn't mean anything drastic, but at least start planning about kind of where, where you want to go. What would happen if you lost your job? Do you have like passive income that's going to help you do that? Do you have the right investment? I have a friend of mine is doing, is doing very well in the corporate world. And I had a conversation with him but he's completely engulfed in the corporate mm. world. He's making a lot of money, but his money, guess where it is? <laughs> it's in the, it was in the stock market. <laughs> and then, uh, but he didn't manage it even, like somebody else was managing it for him and uh, because he didn't have time. And I feel like, you know, you wanna be able to take a little bit more ownership and of course, more responsibility towards your, your investment. Um, because nobody else is going to take care of your money better than you. Um, so I think, I think some, you know, you get some advice, obviously, and all of that, but you want to be part of the decision. You want to be involved in monitoring and, and making sure that if you have a significant amount of uh, asset or equity that you're investing, you want to really look at it and be, be part of that decision-making process for how your money is being invested. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I have a lot of uh, both active and passive investors in my network. And uh, the reality is even the passive investors need to be active. It, it, it generally at the beginning of the process, they've got to do their work up front to vet out the deal, vet out uh, if they're investing passively in a syndication deal, they need to vet the sponsor. Um, so even if you are passive, there's still some work to be done for yeah, sure. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. You, I mean, I'm all about passive income, but at the same time you have to, okay, well, I'm going to, this is going to be passive, but I'm going to put that money in here and I vetted that person. And we're going to talk about kind of like your, your process for vetting, uh, vetting the right syndication. So Cannibal Capital, you do, uh, you do syndication. How many syndications do you have right now? Is this like a portfolio or is every deal separately uh, separate or how does that? Yeah. So syndication um, was something that was foreign to me until a few years ago. Even being a broker in the space and working with investors, uh, you'd be surprised at how many people just aren't aware that uh, investing in syndication is an option. 
And so uh, the me getting involved in syndication was really a byproduct of a problem that I was trying to solve for my local investors. Uh, I was working with a lot of investors who had bought or wanted to buy uh, multifamily property here in Utah. Well, as I would get into these conversations with them, um, they it, it, it would become clear that they didn't necessarily want to own the real estate. Mm -hmm. yeah. They wanted all the benefits that real estate can provide, the cash flow, the appreciation, the tax benefits, the depreciation. They wanted all that. They thought the only way that they could get it was by buying their own investment property. Yeah. Um, but when we really got into it, uh, they just wanted the benefits. They didn't want to own that fourplex, that sixplex, that 12plex, whatever it might be. So I also had the challenge of many of my investors who had bought real estate in Utah wanted to participate in deals that would provide them with more cash flow. Yeah. You thought there's a lot of great reasons to be buying real estate in Utah over the last five to 10 years. Cash flow is not necessarily one of those. And so I was challenged to serve my clients that A, didn't necessarily want to be active investors where they own their own property. B, they wanted to diversify outside of what they had been doing here in Utah. Yeah. And C, they wanted to participate in deals that had a better blend of both cash flow and appreciation, which I was struggling to provide them here in our local market because we're mm -hmm. in a high growth market, low cash flow market. That's right. Yeah. So all three of those reasons caused me to seek out other options. And I went down a few different paths, ultimately found syndication as a viable model for me to get involved with and help my investors solve those problems. Mm -hmm help the investors that wanted to be completely passive, help them get involved in deals that had a better blend of both cash flow and appreciation, and C, be highly diversified. Mm -hmm. Instead of buying that fourplex that's gonna cost a million dollars and is gonna require you to put down $300,000 in cash on that fourplex here in Utah on one property with four doors in one location, yeah. I could potentially help that investor place $50,000 investments across four to six different institutional quality commercial grade assets mm -hmm. in multiple locations throughout the country with multiple business plans and multiple operators. Yeah. And so wow. they'd be highly diversified. <clears throat> yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So with basically they're buying, when they're buying into your uh, cannibal capital, they're basically buying into a portfolio of, of your investment. Yeah, to answer that question directly, no, we do one-off syndications. So uh, single asset syndication. Okay, yeah, so okay, okay. My, my investors, uh, I, I, I see my role as going out and finding top tier operating partners. Okay. And sure. vetting the operating partner, vetting the deal, and partnering with those select operators on those select deals and then allowing members of my investor network to choose to invest alongside us in those opportunities. Oh, okay, okay. And it's a one-off syndication, meaning they're investing in a particular asset with mm -hmm. a particular business plan. They are not investing in a fund at this stage. It may be something that I do in the future, but at this stage, uh, it's one-off syndications. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so the idea in terms of the diversification that they would get would be that 
instead of putting half a million dollars against one asset, they would be able to put $50,000 on this syndication with you, another 50,000 here, 100,000 here, and it would be diversified across multiple assets in multiple yeah. markets. And, and, and the, the majority of my investors have invested in multiple deals with us. Yeah. So it gives them an opportunity to invest in different parts of the country with different business plans, mm -hmm. different return profiles, different holding periods, et cetera. Okay. So, so maybe you want to, I know maybe it's a little bit too late to talk about, but maybe some people still don't know what a, a syndication is. Maybe you want to describe what it is yeah. and kind of give I, a, a little bit of a, an idea of the breadth of syndications that you have as a carnival capital. Yeah. So uh, in the last roughly, so about two years ago is when we started exploring syndication. I spent six months to a year really vetting sponsors, getting to know sponsors, really learning the syndication model. And in the last roughly 12 months, we've acquired with our uh, operating partners around $175 million of real estate across five different assets in five different geographic locations. So um, that's what we've done. And as far as syndication is concerned, um, at a very high level, a syndication is, is just a way for investors to pool money and resources to be able to go and buy an asset that they most likely wouldn't be able to buy on their own. Mm -hmm. And there's generally two groups of individuals inside of a syndication. You have the general partnership, which consists of the individuals that are sponsoring the deal and are ultimately re ultimately responsible for the success or fail failure of the deal. They're responsible for finding the deal. They're responsible for getting it under contract, negotiating the terms. They're responsible for obtaining the debt. Um, they're responsible for um, attracting the equity and ultimately responsible for executing on the business plan. Um, that's the general partnership. And then you have the limited partners, which are the passive investors, the individuals that are putting their capital into the deal with an expectation of a return. And they're limited in their responsibilities, limited in their liability, and they're for the most part completely passive in the investment. And so that's how those syndication deals are structured. There's some restrictions on who can invest in syndications, depending upon uh, the, the SEC regulates these type of deals. And there's some restrictions on who can participate and who can invest and how it should be done. Uh, happy to go into that, but maybe that's a conversation for another yeah, I think time. We, I should, we should talk a little bit about that, kind of like what are some of the uh, investors' criteria? Do they need to be accredited investor or do yeah. you have to accept so Typically in syndications, you're going to find them. Uh, so again, the, the SEC regulates these deals and there's rules around how the, because you this is a security. Basically, you're investing in a security, even though you get all the tax benefits as as ownership of the deal that you're investing in, uh, you are buying units of the company that owns the real estate. So with that being said, the SEC has some rules and some exemptions that allow sponsors to sort of avoid having to register their security with the SEC. And these exemptions are generally known as Rule 506B and uh, Regulation D, Rule 506C. So uh, 506B allows both accredited and non-accredited investors to participate, 
with the caveat that they need to have a personal relationship with one of the general partners or the sponsors, okay? And uh, with a 506C, anybody can participate as long as they are accredited. And to be an accredited investor, there's a, a, a long list of ways that you can be accredited, but generally speaking, you need to have uh, earned uh, uh, an income of $200,000 um, with the expectation of earning such over the next uh, in the future, so two hundred thousand dollars over the previous two years, with an expectation of earning such moving forward, or you have a net worth of a million dollars outside of your primary residence. So they're generally the two qualifiers to become an accredited investor, which I'm sure most of your listeners are aware of. Um, but those are the most common structures: the five hundred six B and the five hundred six C, and some of the differences. Yeah. And then so in terms of the investment itself, like what is the minimum capital that's required for for your syndication? typically? Yeah, it's going very it's going to be deal specific. Um, generally speaking, though, you're going to see fifty thousand dollar minimum investments. OK, OK, sounds good. And the uh, the exit period, like how long is the, the whole period for the for the investment? Again, my goal is to provide a variety of investment opportunities to my investors so that they can be diversified, which includes length of the business plan. So uh, we have uh, a couple deals that are three and five year uh, hold periods. And then we have others that are long-term hold with a refinance planned uh, in year three to four. Okay. And uh, they're different strategies. One is more of a long-term hold, higher cash flow deal. The others are shorter term, where we're going in and, and really increasing the value of the asset with the intent to sell and, and liquidate. Right. Oh, yeah. So that's <clears throat> that's good because I, there are very few syndications that are actually like long-term uh, play where you're going to get the cash flow. It's focused on cash flow. So I'm very happy to hear that you you have a syndication there that's planning on adding value, refi get some of your capital out and then having the cash flow following that. So I think that's very good. Yeah, you're right. The The vast majority of sponsors are looking, and that's how these private equity companies grow substantially is they, they when they have a, an exit after they've increased the value of an asset, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's generally or has been a pretty big exit and it allows these companies to be flush with cash to be able to grow yeah. at a faster pace. And so you see a lot of the sponsorship groups that will lean into the shorter term because it allows them to really accelerate their growth. But there are some quality sponsors out there who are mm -hmm. uh, almost exclusively focused on long term cash flowing opportunities. Well, David, that's an excellent segue into my next question about the, the how do you find the best syndicator to uh, to invest with? Well, I would say, um, again, going back to this passive investing concept. Uh, yes, these type of deals are passive investments, but the reality is there is a tremendous amount of work that goes in up front to identify and vet a quality sponsor. So when I determined that this was an avenue that I wanted to go down, I spent uh, a year getting to know uh, quality sponsors in select markets across the country. 
I had a unique advantage because I host a podcast that's focused on in uh, multifamily investing, commercial multifamily investing. And so it allowed me to network with a lot of these sponsors, bring them on the show, get to know them. Um, but ultimately, when I set out to go and find my very first sponsor that I wanted to partner with and do a deal with, I was looking for a few criteria. Number one, I wanted a sponsor who was local to their geographic investing area. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of investors and sponsors that will invest outside of their local market where they live or where they office. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's many uh, sponsors that are very successful at investing outside of their local market. But for me, with my first deal, I wanted a sponsor who was investing in their backyard that was entrenched in that local market that had unique um, understanding of what was happening in that market because I felt like it was going to give me a competitive advantage. Yeah. So that was number one. I wanted a sponsor who was investing in their local market. Number two, I wanted someone who had a, uh, a track record of success and I wanted them to have enough experience that I could feel confident in their ability to perform moving forward. And so for me, that meant I was seeking out a sponsor who had at least 1,000 units under their belt, meaning they had acquired at least 1,000 units across five different assets. I also wanted, uh, for my third criteria, was I wanted someone that was on a growth trajectory. I didn't necessarily want to be working with a sponsor who had been in the business for 20 years, built up a billion dollar portfolio and was sitting back on their haunches, enjoying what they've built. Yeah. I wanted a sponsor. My investors want to place their capital yeah. in deals, active deals that can provide a good return, which meant I needed to be working with sponsors that were active in the market and were out hungry, hunting for new opportunities. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, it was values aligned which is the hardest of them all um, because it takes a tremendous amount of time to get to know people. And so when I say values aligned, I wanted to be working with someone who um, was going to treat my investors the same way I would want them to be treated, who I knew would do the right thing regardless of the circumstance and how difficult things got and who had excellent communication, meaning regardless of good or bad, they're communicating effectively and timely and lastly it had to be someone that i liked yeah because i was going to be a partner with this person for the next three to potentially 10 years and so it needed to be someone that i actually got along with that i enjoyed working with and alongside with and i had confidence and trust in them and unfortunately that's the time that's the piece of it that takes the longest time frame is yeah. getting to know these people, how they uh, how they function, who they are as a human being, and how they're going to react in difficult times. So, uh, which one came first? Like, did the market? Did you choose the market first, or did you find sponsors and say, "Oh, this sponsor is great"? It doesn't matter where the market is. If you find a great sponsor, it's going to work out. Yeah, that's a great question. Today, it's less about the market and more about the sponsor. But I will say on that very first deal, I had identified a few select markets because of what my investors were looking for mm -hmm. that I wanted to focus on. And then I sought out sponsors that were in those markets. Okay. Today, as, I've, as my sponsor relationships have grown, it's more about doing, uh, I believe that a good deal can be done in almost any market. That being said, we Except gravitate- you're on local market. 
<laughs> <laughs> well, a good deal can uh, good deals are being done in my local market all day long. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, there's also something to be said about diversifying across multiple yeah. markets, and also about your goal. Right, you're, you're, it's a good market for certain types of investment. But if you're Absolutely. looking for more passive income and cash flow. Uh, you know, then yeah, maybe your market. The same thing for me. Like I was in the Cal in the California. You know, it it didn't make sense to invest for cash flow in California, so I had to go yeah. outside. So it's the same thing. I was a little it, bit yeah. It just depends on the strategy and the goal. <laughs> yeah, depends on the strategy and the goal yeah. of the investor for yeah. sure. Okay. So what are some of the criteria that you had for the for the market selection? It was pretty simple initially. I was looking for uh, markets that would provide, and keep in mind, one of my early goals was to investors with a better blend of both cash flow and appreciation. So yeah. I was looking at markets that had that, that had a good price to rent ratio um, and would provide a better cash flow and appreciation. Mm -hmm. In addition, I wanted a market that wasn't boom or bust. And so I was seeking out the Midwest markets. And there's a few select markets that uh, had um, that, that were very stable. They weren't boom and bust. You didn't see big spikes. You yeah. didn't see big drops. There wasn't a massive influx of population, but there also wasn't a drop or decline. Yeah. And so there were just very stable, secure, safe markets to be involved in. And that's what I set out, uh, set out to find initially. Um, we ended up investing in Kansas City, which yeah. has been more of a growth market than initially anticipated. Um, but it mainly became because of the sponsor that I had built a relationship with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I invested in, uh, I still invest in Cleveland and it's very similar criteria. I mean, we put like landlord friendly in there with add that, but, uh, uh, you know, good uh, price to rent ratio. Also what I call sustainable growth you know just nothing to write home about like nothing to be excited by you know if except if you're from cleveland then yeah definitely lots of things to be excited about but in terms of the economy and stuff like that yeah it's just like it's just solid no boom and bust in fact you mentioned cleveland we did uh we've done a deal in northeast cleveland in a in a an affluent suburb uh yeah. mentor northeast suburb of cleveland mentor ohio and mentor, I believe, if I got the, the statistics right, um, over the last 20 years has only seen a population growth or decline of less than 1%. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so so not, yeah, super no. sexy, yeah. not super sexy, but a very stable market. Yeah, and how, what's the population in mentor? Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. I'd, I'd have to go back and look. But 100,000, 200,000 maybe? Um, yeah, I, I believe it was like 175,000 or something like that, you know. So 1% of that up and down every year, like a thousand people. In it's a, pretty minimal. Out. Yeah. So it's not many, many people. Yeah. But, uh, and, the, and the median the median household income was really high, like $72,000. So pretty, pretty strong median household yeah. income. Yeah. So yeah, that's good. So yeah. So it sounds like, sounds very interesting because I, that's same for me too. Like, you know, we found that the, uh, the Midwest, the Rust Belt was kind of like the area where you can really have like, People that have good jobs, they have, uh, you know, they, the the price to rent ratio is good. You know, everything is good. It's just like, it's just not exuberant like you see on the West Coast. Like you have these exuberant growth uh, pattern yeah. and all of that. And it's just like, you know, nobody can afford that. Then you have to move like two hours away and blah, blah, blah. So. 
and I would say that's another reason why we've also invested in Texas and mm -hmm. in Georgia, um, as well as in Utah, uh, because those markets also are higher growth markets. Yeah. I don't only want to be investing in deals that provide cash flow. The mm -hmm. reality is no one got no one gets rich off of cash flow. Mm -hmm. Cash flow. Um, the way I look at it is I want to be placing bets in a few different markets, but where I'm at in my investing cycle personally is that I want to be investing in markets where there is a quicker turn, where there's higher growth potential, where we can liquidate and then I can take that equity and then go and place that in cash flowing deals. Mm -hmm. um, and so it really depends on where investors are in their life cycle yeah. that being said again my goal is to provide a blend of opportunities for my investor network yeah and i think that to me like the difference uh when when you're doing these value add deals and these appreciation deal you need more time to do that or you need to have a sponsor that's going to do is going to do all the work for you uh, i think if you're an investor you know you, you're going to invest passively with a sponsor that's going to work on the appreciation side of it and the value add and then the rest of your money, when you get your money out of that, then yeah, you should invest in, in passive income deals yourself. Um, so I think that that would be, so that way you can have like a diversified portfolio. But I think to be yeah. the important criteria, I think as a individual, you and I are lucky because we can spend all, all day investing, but uh, a lot of people are working, um, you know, and they don't have the opportunity to spend like, you know, two days with a contractor walking through a property and all that kind of stuff. So that's right. Yeah. So then you found, so found the market and then uh, on your show, then you talk to a lot of sponsors and then kind of like decide what, and the sponsor would find the deals or how, how would you find the opportunity? Like yeah. I actually don't spend any time sourcing commercial syndication deals. Oh, really? Um, we uh, we partner with sponsors who generally are the ones with the relationships with brokers in their local market. Once they have a deal under LOI or pre-LOI, we'll, uh, they'll bring it to us. We'll do our own due diligence on it. We'll vet the deal. We'll underwrite the deal. If we as a team and a partnership feel like it's a good opportunity, then we'll move forward from there. But nice. generally, my partners are the ones sourcing the deals in their local markets. Oh, so that's great. So you have a network of sponsors that I said, you know, and then they come to you for the capital raise and then the investor relation, the asset management piece of it. But then they, they find the deal. They manage everything on the ground because they're, they're strong on the local market. So, yeah. Okay. I said, so, so it is similar for me. Like I'm a lot on the single family rental uh, side of things. And it's kind of the same thing for us too. Like we have, you know, a team on the ground, they're local, they're, you know, completely invested in their market. And then we find, we source some of our deals, but they also send us their deals also. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that kind of, um, they know where to go. They know all of that. And then they manage the properties for us. So that makes it super easy. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So we found, for us, we found the market first. Then from the market, then we found uh, the sponsor of the property management company that was solid and, and then after that, then uh, then we found the deals and we, we managed the deal that way. Yeah, and I'll say uh, some of uh, some of my operating partners um, actually have integrated property management into their business. Yeah. So uh, others will use third party property management, and uh, I think there's pros and cons to the both. 
mm-hmm. but ultimately, uh, it's critical to have a great property management relationship. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. I think also depending on the size, right? I think if you, I think some of the investments that you're making are actually in a smaller size. So, uh, and by smaller, I don't mean like, you know, uh, yeah, I mean like still a significant size, but not like not a hundred doors and 200 doors. Um, so, so for these markets, I think it's, you may not have like uh, in-house property management that's going to be in there. For uh, for ours, um, we're generally only targeting deals that have 100 units or more. Oh, uh, you mentor, are? Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, oh. Mentor is our smallest asset, and that's 72 units. Oh, but, uh, okay. you know, like 164 units in Kansas City, 345 in Houston, uh, another 300 in, in Georgia. So uh-huh. yeah, these are bigger assets. Oh, I see. I was under the impression that you actually went for even the smaller assets than that. Like no, now from a, <clears throat> let me clarify. I have two parts to my business. My brokerage business here locally in Utah yeah. is serving private investors who are buying small scale multifamily for their own uh, personal portfolios. Okay, okay, okay. So anything under $5 million but they're buying that as a sole investor. That's right. You know, no, these are business owners, high net worth individuals, doctors, lawyers that are buying a 12-plex, a 24-plex, a 6-plex for their own portfolio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. These deals, the syndication deals, are usually you know, at a minimum $10 million up to the Georgia deal was a $100 million project. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very good. Um, so uh, what about the... Uh, any particular not actually when you started cannibal capital your goal was to actually build your own personal uh portfolio and stuff like that so did you end up i think you you, did you end up buying any of these investments or are you invested basically oh yeah yeah i invest in every one of the deals that we're involved in Mm -hmm. i actually avoid Mm -hmm. buying small-scale multifamily property here in utah because i want to focus on my investors who are buying here locally and mm-hmm. i don't necessarily want to compete with them yeah, yeah and so uh we only provide brokerage services in that regard mm-hmm. uh for clients that want to buy that product type but yeah absolutely um through the syndication model uh, i invest not only as a limited partner but also have equity interest as a general partner okay. in every general. one of those deals okay uh, so uh, you're obviously so in terms of the capital raise. I mean, this is all. And whenever you're an investor, even if you're an a- active investor, you're always looking for money. Uh, you know, my saying is always like, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you're always short a couple of millions. Um, and so true. <laughs> and uh, so, but it's important to know how to raise money. And I think that for you, um, I mean, you you're doing that basically uh all day raising money for all your projects so any kind of like tricks or kind of like uh things that can help uh, other people that are raising money for their own deals that you can share with us yeah i've often talked about my first raise where we raised 1.4 million dollars in 48 hours without any prior capital raising experience now the reality is (laughs) that yes it was 48 hours from the time we released the deal to when it was oversubscribed but the the reality is i spent literally 12 months preparing for that first deal to go out right Mm, i talked about how i went through a process of vetting all these sponsors and vetting deals also meanwhile i'm communicating with my investor database 
Yeah. I'm telling them, I'm having conversations with my investors on a daily basis about what they're looking to do. And so when I started to formulate this business strategy, I sent out an email to my database and I said, hey, this is what I'm looking to do. Would you be interested in participating in a deal in the Midwest that provided a better blend of both cash flow and appreciation than we could see here in Utah? Mm -hmm. And I had a, a very, very strong positive response to that email. And so then I started to communicate what the strategy was, the type of deals I was looking at, the type yeah. of sponsors I wanted to be doing business with, and spent you know a significant amount of time preparing for that. Once I had the deal under contract, I flew out, I met with the team, I vetted the deal, I toured the asset, I toured comps, mm -hmm. I toured the market. Um, we recorded video, we did an introduction webinar to the sponsorship uh, team. And all this time, I'm communicating this to my investor network. So that when we were ready to release the deal, yeah. all my investors were teed up and excited about the opportunity. And so we oversubscribed it, we couldn't you know, allow everybody who wanted to participate <laughs> to participate. And that's a wonderful place to be as a capital raiser. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because there's also, a, even if you know a lot of people that have, you know, big wallets and they have uh, asset, you know, significant amount of cash to invest, there's also a question of timing. No, none of these investors are sitting on cash forever. I mean, they want that cash and same, same for you and I. I mean, we want that cash to work for you, for us. Uh, it's not sitting in the bank. That's the last place I want my money to be. So you put it, you invest it, you invested in assets. So there's a question of timing also. And I think yeah. this is, uh, this is potentially one of the many reasons why you were successful in raising it so quickly is that people can then just adjust their timing also for when the, that money is going to become available for your investment. Yeah, I think there were, uh, there were plenty of our investors who held off on other opportunities because they knew something was coming through the pipeline. Yeah. And so that's important to keep communicating with them. And what I've experienced is that about 10%, 10 to 15% of our investor network have invested in each one of our deals. So when you think about that, if you need, you know, uh, let's just call it a million dollars to make the numbers easy, yeah. and you have a hundred thousand dollar investment, well, you need ten investors, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, you need to have a database of at least a hundred mm -hmm. quality investors who have the capacity to invest to be able to get ten investors to invest that hundred. So it really, um, you know, you have to have a lot more of a robust network than you think for yeah. the amount of equity that you want to raise. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And for us, I think, yeah, we have a, a lot of the investors that we have, they're not even uh, accredited investors. So most of them are non-accredited that we have a long-term relationship with. So, um, you know, so for us, it's even like the response. Is, we have a, a lot of investors, but yeah, the, for us, like maybe it's like, yeah, they might go a whole year exactly. with being able to place an investment until the next time they can make an investment. Right. Exactly, exactly. Well, uh, David, it was uh, great talking to you. Uh, if people want to uh, reach out to you, they want to know more about Cannibal Capital, also uh, your podcast. Um, so where can they reach out to you? Um, yeah, thanks for that, Eric. Uh, uh, I like to give out a free resource, uh, oh, yeah. something completely free of value. Uh, one of the many conversations I have with my investors 
is all about how their property is currently performing. And one thing that my investors often overlook with their own personal portfolio is they look, they're always looking at their, their cash on cash return and it's solid and they feel like the performance is good, but they neglect to look at their return on equity. Oh Anybody who's bought. <laughs> I can't believe it. I'm, Anybody I'm, who's you're bought. You're the only one. You and I are the only one talking about this. Well, I, I think others are, but it's often overlooked. The I reality know. is yeah. anybody who's bought real estate in the last 10 years has a tremendous amount of equity built up in that property. And as that equity builds up, your return on that trapped equity goes down. So many investors who think their investment property is performing well, when we help them run a return on equity analysis, they realize it is underperforming substantially and it's time for them to reposition the yeah. equity that they have built up in their portfolio. Yeah. And so I've got a free, a free resource for anybody that wants to use it. It's just returnonequityreport.com. If they go to returnonequityreport.com, we okay. have a free calculator that they can use to run their own return on equity report quickly within like five minutes. Oh yeah, that's um, Outside yeah. of that, uh, they're welcome to reach out to me at canovocapital.com. That's C-A-N-O-V-O capital.com, canovocapital.com. Yep. And then our podcast is the lead sponsor podcast. We interview apartment syndicators and investment fund managers who have acquired at least $100 million of real estate. Excellent. Are you on social media at all, like uh, IG, Instagram, or anything like that? Yeah, uh, you can search me up. Uh, I'll, I'll send you a link, Eric. You okay. can include it in the show notes. But uh, yeah, um, Instagram, david.theon.robinson. That's a long one. <laughs> or just search me up, David T. Robinson on LinkedIn. Okay. David T. Robinson on LinkedIn. Okay, very good. Well, David, it was a pleasure speaking with you. And um, talk to you later. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Break Away from the Rat Race with your host, Eric Martell. If you want to share your story and experience with our listeners, please message us on Facebook at Break Away from the Rat Race. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast on iTunes.